Welcome to Talk to My Assistant, where you'll learn everything you never wanted to know about being a dun-dun-dun Hollywood assistant. Look, we're here for everyone, whether you're planning a move to LA to work in entertainment or you're just curious how the very bottom tier of Hollywood functions, I'm going to cover it. Each episode, I'll interview a new guest who's climbing their way up the Hollywood ladder to be, you know, an agent, a studio executive, writer, director, producer, and so on. Almost everyone I interview started in the same way, as an assistant. They'll share how they broke in, rose up, and what they learned along the way. They'll also explore a specific area of expertise. So each episode will dive in depth into a new topic. But perhaps even more importantly, they'll share the crazy moments, the horror stories, the funny encounters, and even the things that made them cry in a bathroom stall. Look, we've all been there. But it's the good stuff and the bad stuff. I want them to be completely candid, so we'll keep their identity a secret. We don't want a vindictive former boss who, by the way, most definitely listens to my podcast (laughs) to come after them. Before we dive in, so you know a little bit about me, my name is Rachel Abrams. I started in the mailroom of a major talent agency, which is the most common way to break in, and I assisted two different agents and then worked as an assistant in television development at a network. So a lot of assistanting. I eventually decided that that side of the business wasn't for me, the desk side, and I wanted to pursue a career in comedy, so I left my assistant job. But I still constantly get asked by students graduating from college how to break in. And look, as much as everyone (laughs) loves a good networking coffee, this feels like a great way to give everyone the real. Another question I constantly get asked is from my friends outside the industry, and they just want to hear more crazy Hollywood stories. Because we have a lot of them. Like, did you really have to make water with fruit in it every day? Yes. And I had to call it spa water. Or did you actually pee next to this movie star? Yeah, and it was awesome. So for the first episode, I thought it would be fitting that I sit down with one of my earliest friends from my days as an agency assistant. She wasn't only my partner in crime for like hoarding all the snacks from the office kitchen and pretending it was our personal grocery store, but also for navigating the industry and figuring out what path I wanted to take. She's a budding writer and director, and she's great. We talk about moving from the East Coast, getting her first job at the agency, working in TV writer's rooms where she has a lot of experience, and doing a writing fellowship at a studio. And the topic this week is about maintaining your creative side. For all you creatives out there, we go in depth on how to work on creative projects while balancing the insane full-time assistant jobs. And the importance of sustaining that side of yourself, because if you want to be a writer or director, that's why you're here. Also, before I get into the interview, I want to share that Talk to My Assistant has a blog. Each episode, 
we'll have an accompanying post where I'll elaborate on something from the interview, and I'll also share a fun photo from the guest. You can find the blog and photo on a website, talktomyassistant.com. You can also find the photos on Facebook, Instagram, which is at talktomyassistant. Go ahead and pull that up now because it's fun to look at while you listen. Okay, lastly, I'm releasing three episodes at once just so you don't have to wait. Go ahead, dive in, hear them all, and please rate and subscribe. Look, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've always wanted to say that. And now I'll quit rambling and please welcome our first guest. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been redacted to protect the innocent. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Rachel. Take a look at the name on your coffee cup. Oh, boy. Is it something underscore A-S-S-T? God damn it. <laughs> Pull off the brown. Oh, boy. Oh, man, I don't want to spill this. Rachel underscore A-S-S-T. I'm setting you up to be my assistant one oh, day. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, um, my birthday cake, uh, when I was an assistant at an agency, said happy birthday, the name of my boss, underscore A-S-S-T. So. You know who uh, oversaw that. <laughs> that was, that was wasn't me. It? <laughs> I forgot I did that. Damn, it's like four years later, I'm still making the same the jokes, same which joke, can't be I'm a still good laughing sign for at me. Them. I got to say, I was like, I should get Lauren, you know, Starbucks for this podcast and like walking there and putting in an order that was more than one cup for someone else was very reminiscent, like giving me a little PTSD. And they did mess up my drink. Pass and pass. I was like, well, it's just for me. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> You're not um, getting fired because of this coffee order. Exactly. So I would love to jump in and just kind of just to give the people the background, like, you're a writer and director, but you've gone through the assistant track to kind of get your bearings in the industry. So I kind of want to just start from the very beginning, you know, for people who want to be writers and directors, you know, one of the courses that you can take. So just starting from like, is this something that you always knew you wanted to do? Did you know you always wanted to end up in LA? Totally. So I went to film school at NYU and did their sort of classic writing and directing film school experience and made as many films as I could and was really excited to graduate and and pursue writing and directing on the next level. But it was also very important to me to be financially independent. And I was worried that doing something like a freelance video production job wasn't going to give me the financial stability that I wanted to move out of my parents' house and live on my own. Um, And meanwhile, I graduated in 2013, so it was kind of the beginning of the the golden age of television (laughs) that that people speak of. Um, You know, Mad Men was tearing it up, Game of Thrones was tearing it up, like, it was like TV was suddenly very exciting, um... And the kinds of shows being made were very diverse. So, yeah, you know. I mean, that that was right when I feel like everyone started to direct their attention to television over features. Yeah. That, that was like, especially when we were starting out on the agency side, the TV lit department was the sexiest place oh, to be. Oh, totally. It was, yeah. It was like being <laughs> on Wall Street in the, in the 80s, you know. It was just, 
Oh, yeah. So I kind of got the idea in my head that Los Angeles um, was something worth a try because I'd heard legends that there was a lot of TV work there and it was a little more affordable than New York uh, for a a college, a recent college grad just starting out. So that, that was kind of what made me look towards LA. So then when you decided that you wanted to go to LA, did you know what kind of job you wanted to get? I mean, I had like fantasies of, you know, being a staff writer right away. Yeah. I had (laughs) fantasies of people like seeing my student films and my writing samples that I had done in college and being like, oh man, this girl, she's something special. Like we got to get her on, on the payroll right away as a, as a writer. Um, so that, you know, that fantasy sort of existed, but, uh, you know, the minute I set foot on LA soil, I realized it was a lot more complicated than right. that. Um, so I actually did an internship my senior spring at HBO, uh, and at their Santa Monica office with the, the films Swanky. department. Yeah, it was kind of swanky. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. The assistants at HBO were sort of unanimous in telling me that I needed to work in the mailroom of an agency as soon as I graduated college. Um, They they were like, everyone's first job is at an agency. Like, you have to do it. There's no way around it. And, um, of course, they had all gone through that path, and now they were assistance at HBO. So I was like, man, right. <laughs> I to listen to you. you. You're getting some nice 401k benefits and health insurance and like free Game of Thrones posters. Like you're living the dream. So if you, t- if you say I need to work in a mailroom, like that's probably what I need to do. And, um, you know, I tried to get writers PA jobs or production PA jobs, but I just didn't have the connections to get in there. Uh, for any of those positions, because none of them are posted online. It's all about right. who you know and and having a network that that gets you in there when those jobs are coming and going. Right, which is what the agency ends up being for. Totally, totally. So the only job I could get was in the, the mailroom of an agency, and that's where I ended up. But to be fair, even getting that job at an agency mailroom is sometimes very difficult. Yeah. So did you get in there through contacts at HBO? Yeah, that's like people, when I talk to NYU kids who are going through this, they all ask me that question. Um, I actually sort of a, applied the old-fashioned way. Like, I called the main line at all the big agencies and asked, how do I apply for a mailroom position? And they directed me to an HR person or a recording yeah. of an <laughs> HR person that said, if you want to be in the mailroom, send your resume here. Um and so I, I really just applied the old fashioned way and and did it that did it like that. And then um, I think seeing HBO on my resume uh, made them feel like I was someone who could probably handle sorting mail. <laughs> Can you run us a little bit through what it was like working at the agency and being an assistant there, what you learned and then how you decided to take your next steps after that? Sure. Um Working at an agency was definitely a challenge for me and a big culture shock after coming from going from film school in New York to an agency in Beverly Hills was like huge culture shock. Um, the The wardrobe was one thing. Um, you know, when you work at an agency, you have to wear 
really nice business professional attire every day and the guys are all in suits and ties every single day. So getting all kind of buttoned up and feeling like I needed to be more conservative in my clothing was <laughs> like kind of a new thing. I think it's also conservative, but very fashionable. Oh, like yeah. for women, it's the pressure every day of looking very cool. I remember like walking the halls on the first day and like every single female assistant was like so good at doing her own hair and makeup. Oh, like yeah. They all, it was like a Miss America competition, but like classy and like minimalistic yeah. and like refined. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Totally. And like, how are you affording to wear Chanel when you're getting paid $10 an hour? But that's a conversation. That for math will day. never make sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, kind of in, like, I think. You have to be, in order to be successful as an assistant, you have to embrace the culture to a certain extent. I right. Think railing Otherwise you'll drive it, yourself crazy. Yeah. I think it's kind of a losing battle to like rail against it. Um, so I I just sort of committed mentally uh, to the fact that like this was my world and this was going to be my, my life for a year. Right. And I just wanted to make the best of it. Um, I mean... There are so many little cultural things you have to get used to. Like I remember the first day on my boss's desk, I answered the phone in a way that I thought was a totally normal, reasonable way. By the way, way. I'm sure it was totally normal. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I said, hello, this is so-and-so's office. And he he got off the phone call and he looked at me and he was like, what was that? And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, did I say your name wrong? Like, I... I just answered the phone. He was like, you sounded like someone just died. Like, never answer the phone like that ever again. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then every time you were just probably nervous about how you answered it. Well, that's like also my first boss when we were in this in the TV lit department together, um, sitting nearby each other. I had a boss who I called a client their last name because they just seemed like the kind of guy who would be called by their last name. I feel like I heard it somewhere on the phone. And then my boss reamed me, made me call him back and apologized for calling him by his last name. And the guy was like, both of us just felt awkward because he didn't care at all. And it was just like one of those situations where it's like lighten up, bro. But I think that's just kind of getting used to those things. Yeah. It seems like the agency really like instill in you this idea that like every single little detail no matter how minute or how trivial it seems is like super duper important right so whether which is a good skill to have I would argue yeah it's a it's a good skill to have it's a little shocking if you're totally. coming from like a more loosey-goosey college which most people are because they're coming in the yeah. environment yeah like the tone in your voice wasn't perky enough and you're right. like oh my god like okay I'm or I've gotten now. like you're not perky enough and yeah I'm a relatively perky person. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So you were working at WME in the TV lit department. Um, and I know you're working really late. You're doing a lot of yeah. submissions, rolling a ton of calls. You're on a very busy desk. Um, but you were putting in those hours. At what point did you decide that you were ready to leave and how did you kind of figure out where you wanted to go? Yeah. So, um, I think when you're an assistant at an agency, there are the people there who want to be on the executive track, and those people stay for a while to really build up their skills and connections. But for someone like me, who um, was always very certain that they wanted to be um, pursuing creative goals, I realized very quickly that like a year was going to be plenty of time for me to be there. 
So as my year was coming up, I started to talk to the more veteran assistants uh, at the company, the ones who were like in it for the long haul to become that, agents I just want to take a moment and appreciate the term <laughs> veteran assistant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I salute all the veteran assistants out there. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> um, yeah, so they were very instrumental in in giving me pointers of how to get out there into the world. And as it turned out, my year was coming up right around when all the new broadcast pilots were being picked up to series. So I was able to get a job working as the assistant to a showrunner who was a client of the agency. So the agency knew that now that he had a green light for his series, he he was in the market for an assistant to, to help him. So yeah, that's how my agency escape plan was hatched. Amazing. I remember when you left and I just saw that longing feeling. <laughs> and then once you left and you worked for the showrunner, like how was your day-to-day different? What did you learn there? Like walk us through what that world is like. Yeah. I mean, I think the good news about being an agent's assistant um, and surviving is that nothing will ever be that hard ever again in terms of yeah. how much, phys- like how busy it is and how many hours right. you work, um, you know, like a 12 hour day was a good day and a 13 hour day or a 14 hour day was not unheard of. Um, when I was doing the right. assistant thing. So, um, becoming a showrunner's assistant in one regard was easier because it was really only one person to worry about as opposed to worrying about an agent and they're like 50 something clients. Right. Because I think part of the thing about working at an agency or in representation in general that people don't understand going in is that your assistant jobs are sometimes multiplied by however many clients they have because you're scheduling meetings for them and scheduling meetings for your boss, whereas most other assistant positions, you're only responsible for your singular boss. Exactly. So that was like very refreshing. And then uh, at the same time, the stakes were raised a bit because my showrunner boss was responsible for a whole show. Right. (laughs) Um, So if I screwed up, it was going to like, it could mean time and money and kind of big communication problems within the show. So um, I felt like I was well prepared to to be successful and and keep uh, that guy's life and and responsibilities on the show organized. And and were you kind of more excited about the day-to-day work because it was getting closer and closer to what you actually wanted to do, which is ultimately writing on a show? Or did you still find yourself um, frustrated by the assistant responsibilities? I was... My memories of that job are very positive. Right. Um, I was happy to be reading a bunch of drafts of the same episodes over and over again and see how they evolve right. as you get closer to shooting it. Read those outlines. I was on all the notes calls from the producers and the studio right. execs and the network execs. So you see how everyone involved in the production of a TV show has their role and influence on the material, and that is super helpful. Also being with writers all day long, getting to know them, uh, watching them do their thing, that was all very cool and very helpful uh, to my own writing career. And I think one of the things that can sometimes get lost in translation is that, like, the goal of being an assistant, besides hopefully, you know, building your resume and connections to getting to the job that you want, 
is kind of pulling the curtain back on whatever part of the industry it is that you want to work in because the average person has seen a TV show and knows that there are writers, but the intricate day-to-day process of what actually makes a TV show happen is such a foreign concept. So the fact that as a showrunner's assistant, you're able to learn the mechanizations of how that works is pretty awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I think you and I both went to very reputable uh, colleges with like great film TV media programs. Right. And we were still like, you know, it was like our eyes were like opening and opening and opening every day, learning about things that you just could never get from a classroom setting. Right. Like the practical kind of business day to day things because you're in the trenches and you're doing it. Excuse the expression. um, And then tell us what happened after that. I know that you had a bit of a career change up. Yeah. So um, when I was still an, an assistant at the agency, I was applying to a couple of writing programs uh, while I was still there. And my life philosophy, for better or for worse, is to apply to these things, hope for the best, and kind of forget about them because the odds of getting in are so slim and you really shouldn't ever be hanging your hat, I don't think, on the per- tiny percentage that I, you might be yeah. accepted into one of these I programs. Part. I wish my life was like that. <laughs> it sounds like a lot less of an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just like to keep it chill. Yeah. Man. What can I say? Yeah. So I applied to the Nickelodeon writing program, but didn't think it would pan out and very aggressively pursued getting showrunner assistant jobs because that felt much more real to me than a yeah. writing program. But I ended up getting into the writing program um, yeah, much to my surprise, um, it, that worked out. So after about six months on, um, Mysteries of Laura, which was the show I was on, um, I left to do the Nickelodeon writing program and, um, my boss was very gracious and supportive about that. So that was good. Right. Which is awesome. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about being in the program and, and writing every day and kind of, sure. cause I feel like if you want to be a writer, that that's a totally separate path. So you can go down the assistant or support staff path on a TV show. And you can also do a program where you're essentially getting paid to practice your writing skills. So you could walk us through what the program was like a little yeah. bit. And then also, you know, how you felt that compared in terms of your preparation for your career. Totally. I mean, I'm sure that this theme will emerge in your podcast, but like <laughs> there's just so many different paths. Like every yeah. every person's career is their own snowflake. Uh, and uh it's beautiful. Make it an embroidered pillow. <laughs> <laughs> um so there's really just no right way or one way to move forward. Um and I feel like you could almost do a whole nother podcast about writing programs. <laughs> um but you know, I was only 24 at the time, so I was still in, like, the very early stages. As opposed to now where I'm like, Lauren, <laughs> now get I'm your walker out. 27-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I had never had any experience like that, and I'm sure I never will again because it was literally just being paid a living wage to to write every day, which was very, very cool. Um And there's pros and cons to that, you know, like in one sense, uh, it was 
a very comfortable lifestyle. And in the other sense, I was kind of in a vacuum and like alone on my own planet a little bit when I was there. Whereas when I was working on a show, I was constantly talking to people every day and meeting new people who worked in different departments on the show or who would come through for a meeting or whatever. So, um, very, very different. I don't even know how to consolidate. How would you say in terms of um, subsequent opportunities. Did you feel like yeah. being in a writing program? Cause I know there's sometimes billed as, uh, programs where you'll graduate into a staff writer position, which some people do off showrunner assistant too, but do you feel like that's an accurate representation? You know, um, diversity and inclusion and affirmative action. And they're all so important and such difficult challenges to meet in our industry. So I applaud the studios for trying and using these programs as a strategy. You mean like a, uh, a writing program, a writing program initiative. Yeah, totally. As like a talent development initiative, which is what they are in most cases. Yeah. Um, I don't think they always work out as well as everyone wants them to. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, people who hire writers are showrunners. Yeah. They're not the inclusion talent development executives at whatever studio or network. So it is, there is a gap between the pipelines, you know, like it's not a fluid thing. So, you know, I think I still, even though I had done a writing program coming out of there, just turned 25 years old. Um, you know, I think I still had a lot to prove when I got out of there. I think I had done some impressive stuff, but it wasn't yet enough to, make a lot of noise within the industry for me personally. And then, so what did you do coming out of that? Yeah. So because I was, I happened to be in the Nickelodeon writing program, it was very much, um, submerged in the kids TV world, particularly in the animated kids TV world. And that just wasn't ultimately the world that I really ever saw myself being in. So I felt like I needed to kind of get back in the mix with all the other you know, up and coming young people, uh, who were going out there for your more prime time grown, quote unquote, grown up television, adult programming, adult programming. You and Stormy Daniels. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to get out there, out there with Stormy, side (laughs) side by side with Stormy. Hey, I don't know. Stormy's, you know, getting more directing work than a lot of female I mean I feel like she'd be a really good career coach actually probably (laughs) girl knows how to spin it she does (laughs) she does she's resilient um so you know as as my time with Nickelodeon was winding down I just started talking to friends again and um this comedy on TBS called Angie Tribeca um, starring my ultimate girl crush, Rashida Jones, was looking for a script coordinator. Rashida Jones, everyone's <laughs> ultimate girl crush. I'm a little basic like that. Like, Rashida brings it out in me. <laughs> um, yeah, so they were looking for a script coordinator, and um, I was fortunate enough to land that job. So I know that you have bounced around as a script coordinator on a number of shows, and and just for everyone out there, being a script coordinator is a job where you're tied to the TV show. So whatever kind of time frame the TV show is, which is generally not year-round, you know, it could be a few weeks, a few months, half a year, you're working on the show for that amount of time, and then you're kind of let loose to find your next gig. Um, so, Lauren, I know that you've been on, like, working on a number of shows in yeah. that capacity. Could you walk us through 
just briefly what a script coordinator is and kind of how that's affected your trajectory? Sure. Yeah. So the thing about assistant jobs on TV shows is that TV shows come and go <laughs> and get canceled and get renewed and get hearts re- get broken. They get, re- <laughs> they get rebooted sometimes, but like you're probably they get rebooted be- <laughs> 10 years later. <laughs> so it's, it's really crazy. Um, Rachel did a great job explaining it. I think I'm going to play that recording for my parents and family members when they're like, wait, why? I feel like, yeah. Are you not employed at all moments of This all podcast is really just for the parents time. so they understand yeah. what we're doing. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So it's very challenging to stay employed, especially if a show is to get canceled, which has happened to me more than once. Right. Um, well, most shows get canceled. Yeah. After the first season. Isn't that statistically true? Uh, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it feels true. <laughs> it feels true, but most most shows don't have very long runs. Yeah, and the other side of that coin is, you know, if a show, for example, Angie Tribeca, it's a 10-episode half-hour show. So it's a very short term that you're actually working on that show. Right. And if you're a writer you're getting paid a nice WGA weekly rate and script fees. So you can afford to like maybe not work on hiatus. If you're an assistant making a, you know, crappy assistant rate, quite, quite frankly, and yeah. not getting health insurance when, when the job is over, you probably can't afford to like wait around and hope that the show right. gets a second season or a third season or what have you. So those types of jobs are like script coordinator, writer's assistant, sometimes showrunner's assistant, but sometimes that yeah. position gets to stay on with the writer um, yeah. while it's on hiatus. So what exactly is being a script coordinator? Just kind of like the short... Tagline, because I know it's a complicated job. Yeah. Um, So in a nutshell, you are responsible for getting the script from the writers to everyone else who needs to get it. So that's cast, crew, uh, producers, uh, studio execs, network execs, literally every single person who's not a writer. Um, So basically, the writers will write the script. They'll give it to you. You proofread it. You format it. You make sure everything in it makes sense from the story to the sentences, to right. the slug lines, to the scene numbers. Um, it all has to make sense. It all has to be on the page because literally hundreds of people are relying on it to do their jobs. So that's really the core responsibility. And you deal with a couple other things like legal clearances and giving departments, other departments on the show a heads up if there's something kind of unexpected in the script that's coming, coming up. Right. So it's definitely a job where you have to be very on top of it. And I noticed just from watching you that sometimes you are working around the clock because a script would be ready on Saturday night and you had to proof it and get it out to the network in the studio. And so that kind of job where you're always on call, kind of like you are being an assistant to certain people. Yeah. I mean, with a TV show, it's like, you know, your showrunner boss might get struck with a bolt of creative lightning and want to change a scene that shoots the next day. So if that happens, you um, you have to wake up in the middle of the night or whenever it may be, kind of like a right. surgeon, right. and operate on the patient, which is the script, and make sure it gets back out there and, and everyone can do their jobs in a matter of hours. Script, <laughs> script surgeon. That's basically what it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what's next for you? So uh, I have been script coordinating for the past two and a half years and along the way I have 
built up a lot more films, a lot more writing samples, a lot more relationships, and managed to get an agent and a manager. So I finally feel like I've laid the groundwork uh, that I've been trying to lay. You know, like it's definitely a bit of a turning point milestone moment for me. And um, the plan right now is to go out for staffing season and and try to make that jump to staff writer. So I know that this kind of process and and this whole like entering entertainment at the bottom, like we said, there are so many different ways to do it. But specifically, if you want to go into the creative field, you kind of have to do this two-pronged approach. So while you were going and working these various assistant jobs and not as much when you were doing the writing program, but you also had to kind of cultivate this creative life, especially because you not only want to write, but also direct. So for people who want to, you know, go into these fields, how how do you balance, you know, your own creative side hustles with the kind of extenuatingly difficult job of being an assistant? Not uh, even extenuatingly difficult because now I'm making it sound like it's actually <laughs> surgery, but draining and time consuming. Totally. Um, yeah, it's not easy. Um it definitely requires a lot of sacrifice um, in terms of how you spend your time. Um, I think for most of us, we can't afford to mess up our day job. Like, yeah. get fired. Yeah. <laughs> like, we can't afford to, to get fired But just to illustrate the, the kind of things that could get you fired, <laughs> the range could be just being generally incompetent for a long period of time or just being tired and accidentally dropping the ball on something that just had repercussions. Just like human error. I yeah. I mean, that'll do it. Yeah. I also heard of one kid um, where we worked getting fired because he asked too many questions. Yeah. His Let's talk about how you're not supposed to ask questions. You kind of have to creatively phrase. I would like creatively <laughs> phrase things so that they didn't realize I was asking a question because it's both like they don't want you to bug you. They don't want you to bug them with questions, but they also don't want you to do it wrong. Yeah. I mean, it really comes down to the fact that these companies, particularly the big agencies, are just designed in the to be so everyone's so busy all the time that like there's no logical way to approach most things. It's right. It's really just a lot of being a chicken with your head cut off and right. hoping for the right. best. That is true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, for me, like for many people being an assistant at an agency was a 12 hour a day, very brain draining, uh, detail oriented ordeal that did not leave me with tons of energy before or after the workday to be creative. So I kind of had to accept my limits in a sense and realize that, okay, Monday to Friday, there's really no physical way for me to do my own thing and come into work with my A game. And like you said, it's really important to bring your A-game to your day job. That's an industry day job where you're meeting people who are going to be in your professional life for hopefully the rest of your life, you know? So I realized the stakes were pretty high and decided that, okay, Monday to Friday, I'm 100% committed to just doing this assistant job the best I can and making the most of out of it, making it count. So I adopted this weekend warrior sort of strategy for being creative where I would wake up on Saturday morning and go to a coffee shop and just write for like four hours. And I did that on Sunday as well. So just really cranking it out on the weekend when I had control over my my time right. was 
really instrumental. And, and, you know, you can get little tasks done here and there during the week, but I think that allowed me to like not have a total physical, mental, emotional breakdown. It's just recognize your limits, max out the time you do have, and eventually you'll be in a scenario where you have a little bit more time in your life to devote to creative stuff. But I also think that it's admirable that you are able to stay on top of it that way because there are also people who are so passionate about, you know, writing, directing, whatever their creative instincts are, and then they go into a really draining assistant job. And I'm putting no blame on them. I totally understand. But they just put writing on hold for like the two years where they're an assistant. And it's so important to keep cultivating that, not only for your own education and personal growth, but just because... The whole point of having these assistant jobs besides putting a crappy roof over your head <laughs> is like so that when you make these connections, you have theoretically something to show them, like a script or totally. a short. I think like going out and writing on the weekends and making films on the weekends um, was probably just as important, if not more important than doing a good job in the day jobs I had because I was able to come in, um, you know, every six months and say, Hey, I did this thing this weekend, or I'm going to this film festival, um, because my film's up there or whatever. Um, and that's, that's what it's about. Like that's the stuff that makes your boss go, Oh, okay. This person's standing out. This person's leveling up. And it's something that you definitely have to be steadfast about in terms of your own confidence, because When you're working at an agency or somewhere where content's being created, you're seeing content at such a high level and such a professional level that sometimes it can be hard to be like, this small short that I'm making on, you know, my small camera, you know, isn't going to be enough. But like, that's not true. What you're really trying to develop is your voice. So kind of tuning out your own criticisms that come from working at a cutthroat place where the bar is so incredibly high and just understanding that you're potentially at a different point in your career. But what I think can also be exciting is when you work at a place like that and you see them quote unquote, discover young talent off of something (laughs) totally random or not random, but small. And then you can kind of see that they are looking and you don't have to be making a $1 million. Yeah. And I think this is a point that comes up, but not enough is like, when you're an assistant, you end up sort of absorbing the point of view of your boss. Right. So, like, you sort of just end up just listening to their taste and their opinions all day long, and you you can lose sight of your own at totally. a certain point. And Especially if you're working at a production company or a network that has a specific brand. Totally. And, like, your email address is literally someone else's name underscore assist. I mean, there is some... Shout out to Lauren's coffee cup. (laughs) There is some sort of, like, identity crisis, like, embedded in the whole experience. And I think doing your own art and making that time for yourself allows you to stay in touch with your own voice and your own priorities as a creative person. Whereas if you're not doing that, I think it's very easy to just get into the mindset of judging your ideas and judging yourself like, oh, that'll never sell or, oh, this isn't trending right now or, oh, someone made something similar or different. Like, it's like that is not, that should not be the concern of an artist. Right. That's totally the concern of of people on the business side and that's great. But 
it's not an artist's job to be thinking in those terms. It's your job to be original. So making that space and time for yourself to be original and to dig into that is like necessary for artistic survival, I would say. Definitely. And then in terms of taking that to the next level, because what we're talking about are these kind of parallel lives or parallel, Mm -hmm. I'd almost say jobs because the creative stuff, maybe you're not getting a paycheck, but that's work. You know, it's enjoyable work, but it's labor. So when you're going about doing these two different things and you want to take your creative stuff to the next level, but maybe you're not getting staffed, um, how do you kind of finance, especially if you want to be a director and everything costs money, it's not just sitting at your computer. How do you finance these projects? And what was kind of your first step into the professional world of, of directing? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, when I was at NYU, I crowdfunded my thesis film, which was a very um, meaningful experience in terms of shooting something on a big scope for um, uh, a nice budget and crowdfunding it. I mean, crowdfunding is a great option, but it's also incredibly time-consuming. And I guess there are people who do it, but for me, the thought of producing something, holding down a day job, and crowdfunding was like, going to make my head explode. Right. So I sort of decided that crowdfunding was not really something I was interested in doing post-grad. And just worked with a really small budget a lot, to be honest. Of just stuff that you saved from your assistant. Yeah, saved up my own money. Um, And said, okay, I have this much time, I have this many dollars, and how can I be creative with my resources and get the most bang for my buck? Right, and how can I activate the community that I've built here? Totally. Of people, not only here, but coming from a school maybe where other people moved out to LA. How can I kind of totally activate that network to help me with various parts? Absolutely. And um, it was great to meet, I mean, making things has helped me meet a lot of like AFI filmmakers, for instance. I went to NYU and now I feel very connected to the AFI community and the NYU community because they're all awesome and it's so great to be able to work with, you know, more people and feel uh, part of that system. So, you know... uh, Yeah, there are a lot of communities out there that you can kind of find and dig into. Totally. Like if you're into comedy, all the different comedy schools and comedy theaters... Um, all the various film schools in the area, even if you just want to maybe get some students involved in your project, that they're always hungry yeah. to get their hands on stuff too. Okay. Um, so I feel like I didn't answer that question very well. Oh, right, my, my small budgets. Did I answer that okay? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it definitely depends on your situation because if you have say student loans or something yeah that can definitely eat into that it's very hard in LA in this industry and lifestyle because the industry expects you to live a certain lifestyle which is to go out to networking drinks and Mm -hmm. um you know have a car and have car insurance and gas and, and get like your haircut get and your haircut and on a regular yeah. basis. go to Sephora because you feel like you need to look pretty um it can be hard but I, I just think that there's always a way to kind of make your creative vision come true and kind of make compromises in totally. terms of budget and and my I mean I will never be the person who's like just shoot it for no money yeah like it's fine you know filmmaking is really hard and it's 
nearly impossible to do it for free when you're not a student anymore. Right, because so, no one wants to donate pizza to your film set. Exactly, exactly. You're like, uh, you're a grown-ass adult. Yeah, and yeah like, get a job. I, <laughs> so, you know, what my advice would be is, you know, and I've done this myself, um, if crowdfunding is not something you're you're able to do for whatever reason, like find peers who have complementary interests. Right. Find a friend who is a producer on the rise. Find right. a friend who's an actor on the rise. Find a friend who's a cinematographer on the rise. And has their own camera, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And like make something that um, is beneficial to everyone. Exactly. Pool your resources. Have everyone put in a certain amount of resources or money to make it happen and give everyone credit and authority accordingly. You yeah. Know? And don't be um, afraid to ask questions, I think, too, because if you're a writer and you want to shoot something, you probably, unless you yeah. went to a pretty specific kind of film school, you probably have no idea like how sound works and how all this stuff works. And the cool thing about living in LA is that you're really in it with all these other people who have yeah. that experience. So to get back to your point about like parallel lives and keeping up like my writing directing career along yeah. with my uh, climbing the Hollywood ladder from the bottom career, um, you know, as I was building up a body of work, um, I was showing that work to people. Um, and every time you make a new thing, I think people go back and look at your prior stuff too. So it's yeah. great to like add to your portfolio and refresh kind of your overall website or offering. Um, so as I was creating more work, I was showing it to the people I had met in LA and eventually little gigs started to emerge from a lot from digital outlets who were looking for young, affordable talent such as myself right. at the time. Um, so that's kind of how my, you know, paid writing and directing career started to grow alongside still being a script coordinator on, you know, shows like Angie Tribeca and Transparent right. and shows my parents have heard of <laughs> <laughs> sometimes. And then, always. so I know you recently had a paid, you know, legitimate directing short project while you're still a script coordinator um, and you were able to balance that out, which is super rare. Um, can you just briefly talk to that? Yeah. So um, this past fall, I got hired to write and direct an episode of an awesomeness TV anthology series. And um, that was something that came about through the process I just described with making sh making short films and writing stuff and showing it to people and mentioning it to people. And um, it was it's it was definitely a big deal to get that episodic gig with them and I was prepared to leave my script coordinator job if necessary um but luckily I, I was just really upfront with my boss and and she recognized how important the opportunity was and was supportive of me doing it uh it was only a two-day shoot ultimately so it wasn't something that was gonna like completely take me out of commission for too long right. <laughs> um so yeah it was not easy uh it's kind of it was hard to be focused on two really important things at once. And I probably wouldn't do it again <laughs> if right. I had the choice. Right. Um, but I'm glad that it all worked out. Okay. Now I want to get to the fun part, which is the oh juicy juice that everyone wants to know. So like what, what do you think is the most stupid or bizarre thing you had to do as an assistant? 
I mean, that there are so many. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say the minutia and like controversy over like dinner reservations. So true. Always stressed me out and turned into like the things that would like bulldoze my day and like make me think I was going to get fired the most. Like, you know, I need to make a reservation for my wife's birthday. Like you need to get us into this place. And it's like the day before and you're like, holy shit. (laughs) I was not prepared for like my career to go down over this. Um, And it's also frightening when you have to go in and say that you couldn't get the reservation because for especially agents, but I think executives as well, if they're not getting a reservation, they take that as a knock to their ego and there's nothing that you want to protect more for your own personal health than their ego. So that can be a very frightening experience. (laughs) Yeah. No, I just have all these memories of like, like trying to get my boss into Sundance events and like calling all these other assistants around town to get his name on the list of this thing. And you're like literally doing it in real time. And it's just, it was always so funny to me that like, you know, it's like all these people in LA controlling what's going on in Park City. And like, yeah, so it was so weird. Um, One time my boss wanted a dinner reservation for eight o'clock and his colleague wanted a reservation for seven o'clock. And it just became this all day, like, battle over what time this reservation was Because it was, was a battle over who was more important. Totally. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, it's like a, you know, trendy restaurant. And, like, at some point, the restaurant's like, sorry, we no longer have 8 o'clock available, you know? And then, yeah. you know, like, it was just, like, really stressful. <laughs> you can hear it in my voice that I'm, like, reliving it right now. <laughs> I really thought I was going to get fired that day. Were there Which, any funny mailroom incidents? Oh, yeah. Uh, So, like, I remember one time they sent someone down to the mailroom with a legal pad, and they had everyone, every single person in the mailroom had to write Merry Christmas on this legal pad. And then an agent, like, analyzed everyone's handwriting to see who she wanted to, like, write her Christmas cards that year. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. So she wanted to see who would pretend to be her writing her Christmas cards, yeah. correct? Yeah. I because think... she didn't want to write her own Christmas cards. No, no. that takes <laughs> It takes way too much time to wish people Merry Christmas. Oh, that's amazing. Christmas cheer is a luxury very few of us have. <laughs> Did you ever cry in the bathroom? Uh, no, but I cried in the parking garage a lot. And I think... That's good because that meant you could hold it in until the end of the day. Yeah. I like being in my safe cocoon of a car and just <laughs> crying there. I remember the first time I cried in the bathroom, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. This is my like double worst product cliche. <laughs> I particularly have a funny moment with you, which is when I was driving to work and I realized that I had forgotten to put deodorant on and I was like, I can't work for like 12 hours today. Like everyone's going to smell me. So I called you and I was like, Lauren, do you have extra deodorant? And then you brought me a brand new stick of deodorant to the office, which also goes to show the type of person you are, that you have an extra backup brand new deodorant. I guess I had one in my house and I brought yeah. it with me. Yeah. I've blocked out so much of my, it's, I've blocked out so much of my agency experience in my memory. I feel it's kind like, of bad for contributing to that apparently with my uh, assistant themed birthday cake. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> you totally did. What about sharing the Aaron Kaplan call story? Oh, so I remember it was like 
super early on and I wasn't even an assistant yet. I was still like a mailroom, you know, peasant. And um, <laughs> they deployed me to cover someone's desk while he was on vacation. Wait, can I interject really quickly here? That it's funny that you said mailroom peasant because working in a mailroom is exactly how you would envision it if you've never seen one because it's these young college graduates dressed really nicely pushing carts of mail around the office and dropping it off at every desk like yeah. on the hour. Totally. I mean, you literally, people are like, so what do you do in a mailroom? And it's like, you literally sort mail. You sort mail. And, and then I think it. what you're going to say next is that you also are like a substitute assistant. So if an assistant is on vacation, haha, more <laughs> like if they somehow manage to like go to the doctor, um, <laughs> then a mailroom person will cover their desk and somehow be expected to perform at the <laughs> same capacity as the assistant who yeah. knows how to do everything. <laughs> totally. So I was doing exactly what Rachel said. I was I was covering for someone who was going to be out for an afternoon and um, uh, this is, may this be a public service announcement to all the, the new kids arriving in LA, but there are two Aaron Kaplan's <laughs> and their names are spelled the exact same way. And, um, so the agent I was, you know, just working for that afternoon wanted to call Aaron Kaplan and I called the wrong Aaron Kaplan. I don't know how I was supposed to call the right Aaron Kaplan because all he said was get me Aaron Kaplan. And I typed the name into the system and called the first name that came up, not even realizing there were two Aaron Kaplans. And he just like completely reamed me out for calling the wrong one. And um, yeah. That was, that was, I did really want to cry like on the spot right there because he was just so mean. Yeah. Because also you can adjust to your boss yelling at you because you know your boss and you're just like, this is what this person does. But when it's someone that you don't know (laughs) and you feel like you're really going out on a limb to be their substitute. Yeah. And it was so new. I didn't, I was freaking out because I didn't know how to fix it. Like I didn't know how to get the right Aaron Kaplan because every time I typed in the name, it just wanted to bring me to like this, the this wrong Aaron Kaplan. And right. it was like a whole computer phone brain communication. Meltdown. Like it was just bad. It was really bad. I think he eventually called the right Aaron Kaplan himself because Plus I couldn't those get Aaron it together. Kaplans are probably very used to receiving the they, wrong call. <laughs> I remember once when I was covering a desk, um, the agent was, this ended up happening when I had real bosses, but the agent pulled up outside and had me come down to the building and park his car like a valet. Oh my gosh. That's so stressful. (laughs) Because you end up parking these cars that are double your annual salary. Yeah. Did you scratch your car in the garage of that building? Because I feel like... Thanks for reminding me. I feel like every assistant who worked there has like a similar dent on the back of their car from like just being an emotional wreck and trying to get out of there at the end of the day and like hitting a pole. (laughs) I don't think I have a single friend who like doesn't have a parking garage like dent in their car it's, from it's, their first assistant job. So my it's advice very to LA, but everyone out there is do not get an expensive car. I feel like I want to add like just fun series of questions. Okay. But, yeah, some um, rapid fire questions. Favorite office screening? Uh, Fruitvale Station. Hmm. Because it was very, it was a wonderful film and like very cathartic and made me realize that like, my stupid Hollywood problems were pretty stupid. True. It, it Most put movies everything... will do that. Most realistic <laughs> movies will do that. <laughs> um, probably average number of calls you made in a day at an agency. 
I mean, countless, but if I had to put a number, I would guess like 300. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, especially during staffing season. Um, Favorite celebrity that you've run into over the years? I mean, Tom Welling. It's a tie between Tom Welling from Smallville, a.k.a. Superman, a.k.a. Perfection, and George R.R. Martin, who, like, really is magical. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. I would say that mine is probably Julie Andrews. Oh, I was just, you know. Ford, Julie Andrews. Yeah. It's next level. Mary Poppins. Although I do always like to tell my boyfriend that I did meet Daniel Craig. So I could have been whisked away, but (laughs) held my ground. Could have been a Bond girl. Um, before we go, what do you want to say to the next generation of Hollywood plebeians? (laughs) Um, it's going to be really hard, but if I could survive it, so can you and just take care of yourself and uh, keep at it. It will pay off eventually. Thanks again to Lauren for busting out the first episode. You're a trooper. Uh, sorry again for that cake, but honestly, it was delicious. Please check out our next episode, which is already posted. You don't even have to wait. My guest talks about starting her career as a production assistant and shares insane stories about life on set, as well as some practical advice for making the move to Los Angeles. Listen to it now. But first, rate and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with me, reach out via the website. Let me know what you want to hear. I'll answer your questions either in an episode or I'll just reply directly. And if you have any funny stories that you want to share yourself, shoot those over as well. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Our cover art is by Chelsea Javier. Theme song is recorded by Ryan Heenan with lyrics by me. My name's Rachel Abrams, and thank you for listening.